0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson.
0: And I'm Rachel Sylvester.
1: And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial
0: ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life
1: become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people, who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most?
0: In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, we're taking a listen back to one of our favourite interviews with former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Serving from 1997 to 2007, Blair
1: is the second longest serving Prime Minister in modern history after Margaret Thatcher, and is the longest serving Labour politician ever to have held office. He once said, I've learned a lot in government and I've learned a lot since leaving government. The kind of journey of being in government is that you start at your most popular and least capable and you end up at your most capable and least popular.
0: We've interviewed Blair lots of times over the years about everything from Brexit to the Middle East, education, policy, babies. But this was the most interesting and revealing interview that I think we've ever done. He talked about the childhood that shaped him and what drove him to be a politician. It is extraordinary that he was very personable and very
1: warm politician in many ways but we never knew much about his childhood and he was born in Edinburgh in Scotland in 1953 to his parents Leo and Hazel and had a fairly stable beginning in life moving to Adelaide Australia at just 19 months old and then back to the UK in Durham when he was five years old for his father's job and he remembers this very strong sense that he was loved and safe as a child but his rose-tinted view of the world came crumbling down when he was about 10 His father suffered this severe stroke, leaving part of him paralysed and unable to speak more than two words.
0: What's so fascinating is that Blair saw this moment as the event that shaped his childhood, as he told us. And it was also the moment that he really decided to go into politics. He describes childhood trauma like that as the spur that creates ambition and drives people on to succeed. He says many of the most successful people he's ever known have something like that. And that's certainly what we found in so many of our interviews.
2: When he was 40 and I was 10, he had this very serious stroke that basically ended his career and completely changed our lives.
1: Can you remember the day it happened?
2: Yeah, I remember extremely vividly. Waking up in the morning and my mother coming in and telling me that my father wasn't well. And I immediately realized there was, you know, the way children have that instinct, that this was much more serious than just, he wasn't well. And then he stayed in the hospital for several weeks. And then I remember when he came back home, because the stroke had affected his speech, so he couldn't speak. Um, and was sort of semi-paralysed on one side of his body. Uh, And I just remember all all he could, he could only say the word good and tea. It was terrible for my mother because she had to, she spent three years teaching him to speak again.
1: I thought he was extraordinary in that we knew so little. When he was standing at number 10 with his young children and his wife with that mug, He just looked like the ordinary dad and that's what people thought they were voting for and I think that's what they loved about him in some ways and he knew that so he didn't really dispel that myth and actually he had this incredibly difficult childhood and I was amazed at how tough it had been. He's never had any therapy but the fact that his father had this stroke and then his mother died when he was very young too and his sister was in hospital... And you never realised that. You never realised how vulnerable he'd been when he was very young.
0: Also so fascinating, we've looked into it since we did this interview, the number of prime ministers who have had some kind of loss or trauma at an early age. So of the 55 British prime ministers, 25 lost a parent in their early years and 69% had some kind of childhood trauma. There does seem to be a pattern and it's as if... It's a mixture of the desire to sort of cover up that pain of the early years, but also perhaps it gives you an empathy and an emotional understanding of what people want and a determination to succeed. There's also some sense, don't you think, Rachel, that actually it's affirmation because your
1: parents can't give it to you as much. You know, his mother had died when he'd just left university. He was obviously looking after his father from a very young age with his siblings and his sister had been ill, That. But- that sense that you want some kind of acclamation from others and you're not receiving it from your parents anymore. So you need the voters. And he was very successful at getting voters to vote for him. I mean, more successful than any other Labour politician. And, and I think he loved them and he
0: loved that acclamation. And maybe that was partly to do with the fact that he didn't have enough when he was younger. the other thing that i think is really interesting about him is that his father was a conservative and he in fact wanted to be a conservative prime minister he was about to stand as an mp and when he had that stroke all of those ambitions disappeared and because his father was a conservative he always really understood tories he and he also respected people who voted conservative and people who are conservative and do you remember rachel he said that
1: strange thing when he said that when he'd gone to school he would have been a rebel he thought and And he was to a certain extent, but he thought he might have gone off the rails, but he couldn't go off the rails because he felt the family had gone through so much already that if he also then went off, it was another worry for his mother and his sister and father and older brother that that would be deeply
0: unfair and actually we went to interview him in his country house during the pandemic and he had do you remember he had a pandemic haircut his hair down to his shoulders virtually you can see what it might have been like if ugly rumors Mm. had taken off and he'd end up as a sort of mick jagger figure but on the other hand he
1: still hadn't really done any cooking for years had he so he's very much part of the establishment by then in that i think he'd just cooked an omelette for leo his son and that was the first cooking he'd done for about 10 years and He hasn't driven a car since he became prime minister because he's got all these trappings still. Even in lockdown, he hasn't really, you know, become normal again. I don't Mm. know if he ever felt he was normal, actually.
0: Well, actually, the one thing that you can't escape, even when you become the most powerful person in the country, is your own childhood pain.
2: You know, a lot of people go through the whole of their youth and they never really have disturbing events. Mm. But when you've had a set of them, then I think it means that you... I think you acquire a certain urgency right. in your desire to fulfill yourself.
0: And also not taking life for granted.
2: No, and certainly not taking life for granted, that's that's correct. You know, you can't be sure what's going to happen to you, mm. so you better get on with it. There's no doubt that, that, that my father's illness was a formative mm. event, I, I think. It definitely changed the direction of my life and gave me a, a dimension to my character at an early stage that probably led to a lot of things yeah. afterwards.
1: In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, British politician Tony Blair tells us his story of how the challenges he faced in his early years built him into the longest-serving Labour Prime Minister in modern history.
0: We met Blair in 2020, and as the pandemic had just begun, so too had his obsessions for new television series.
2: State of Happiness is good. Have you seen that one?
1: No.
2: no. <clears throat> that is a Norwegian. Uh, what else is good? All the normal people I thought was very good. I have to say. And I didn't watch that. It seemed to a large oh, amount it? of sex in it.
1: Yeah, Less sex than you think, actually. So you can watch it with your children without being too embarrassed.
2: Well, Sheree had it on in the kitchen the other day and... <laughs> I thought it was pretty... You
1: had to turn away. No. Unorthodox. <laughs> well, I you. Have you seen <laughs> Unorthodox? Uh,
2: no, but I have many friends who told me I've got to see yeah, that. Yeah, that
1: is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. That's a good one to see because it's short as well. There are only four episodes, so it's not like...
0: I've got hooked on Madam Secretary, mm. you've seen that. That's a, basically a sort of female, powerful yeah. yes. Secretary of State. Yes, I
2: literally like never watch political things.
0: No. <laughs> okay. You must
1: have watched West Wing, didn't you?
2: Never. Didn't you really? No.
0: House of Cards? So what do you... House of Cards, no. What do you watch? You just, it has to be non-political if you're going to watch something.
2: Yeah, because otherwise mm. I just get... There's always something that will irritate me about <laughs> or, or sort of get me thinking. It's just it's too much like the day job, so... Yeah. Uh, no, what else is the, this? I, I mean, it's become a whole thing though, hasn't it? These, I mean, these shows are now the moneymakers really, much yep. more than film. But the Scandinavian ones are really, I mean, they've... Hawken,
0: that's mm, political though. The Killing, borken. did you watch all the... Killing
1: Eve.
2: Killing Eve, yeah. So you can I'm watch anything watch that's the later murder, series. Huh?
1: De- murder and death, but not politics.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm. Not too much. I'm fantasy. sort of...
1: Yes, no sex. It's quite difficult.
2: No, 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 no. I don't. I don't mind the sex at all. Obviously, but it's uh, no. The, the my tastes are incredibly sort of basic, and popular. I like things with action. Okay. I like things with a happy ending.
1: Oh, we've always interviewed you in very formal places, either number ten or. It's been in one of your offices in London or
2: yes
0: you've always got lots of sort of mm. orchids and black coffee and now mm. it's roses and beautiful new trees growing and... yes and does that feel rather
1: strange to you now to be here the whole time rather than um, jetting around the world
2: well not traveling is quite good but you know we spend a lot of time here anyway mm. so so I'm I'm used to spending time here but I've never I never spent 11 or 12 weeks. Here or indeed in one place for years and years and years. Probably so 30 it's very years,
0: isn't it, since you were in one place for so long?
2: More than 30 years. Yeah. I can't I honestly can't remember when I was in the same place without moving for this long, probably since I was a child.
1: And you were prime minister for 10 years, but what we really want to do is go back to your childhood to really to find out what shaped some of your childhood and then what shaped your future and how and your political life and your views and your outlook. And you had a very extraordinary childhood, but it started off quite normally, didn't it? You, you went off to Adelaide when you were very young um, with your family and it was all rather sort of perfect and idyllic at the beginning, wasn't it?
0: Apparently you danced on the cruise ship and your nappy, and then the nappy fell down. Is that right? So... Quite a performer right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, off. no,
2: that's where my, where my mother always used to say that, uh, yeah, what was the acting side on my father's side, I think probably that came through, um, because my father himself had a strange childhood, being a, a effectively a, a foster child, but against the wishes of his natural mother. So, uh, and he never really got to know his his real um, parents. So, no, we we had a, a, a perfectly normal childhood. We were in Australia for three years, came back to Scotland, then moved to Durham, and then my father was uh, highly successful as a lawyer. Um, he was a barrister and a a lecturer. Uh, he even had his own little TV slot uh, on um, Time Tees Television, um, and then, you know, when he was forty and I was ten, he had this very serious stroke that that basically ended his career and completely changed our lives.
1: Can you remember the day it happened?
2: Yeah, you know, I remember it extremely vividly um, because I remember coming waking up in the morning, and my mother coming in and telling me that my father. Wasn't well, and I immediately realised there was, you know, the way children have that instinct that this was much more serious than just he wasn't well. And so then we we went to. Um, she decided to take me to school, but he was obviously in hospital, and then he stayed in hospital for several weeks. And then I remember when he came back home because the stroke had affected his speech, so he couldn't speak, um, and was sort of semi-paralysed on one side of his body. Uh, and I just remember all, all he could, he could only say the word good and tea. <laughs> he, could, Gosh. he could ask for tea, mm. but nothing else. That
1: must have been so hard. Though, yeah, it, and it
2: was it was terrible for my mother because she had to, she spent three years teaching him to speak again. Mm. Because in those days as well, you had much less things available for people. You know, nowadays, I guess you've got a whole set of remedial things that people do for stroke victims. But he just, he'd been overdoing it massively because he was doing three different jobs. He was on the road the whole time. He was going to become a Conservative Party candidate. I mean, he was the Conservative Party chairman for the area. And he I think he was going to stand for the seat that Jeffrey Rippon then took in, in Hexham, I think, but I, I, I can't be sure of that. And um, yeah, so, so suddenly then our life completely changed. Obviously our income dropped massively. So
0: what effect did it have on you emotionally? So you went off to school not knowing whether he was dead or alive.
2: How did well, I you feel? Well, just was critically. Ill. I it was terrible. I remember I sort of I the headmaster saw me and we sort of said a prayer for him and all of this and it was you know it was it was, a, it, it was um it was the event that shaped my childhood for sure. I mean, mm. I, you know, when when I look back on it, there are so many things that change because then, of course, afterwards he never he never fully recovered,
0: right. so he
2: could never go back mm. with a political ambition. He could never really he practiced the law a bit, but it was difficult for him in court because he, he, although his speech came back, it was never as it had been. And for example, he had been a very very good uh, kind of. Um, you know, jazz and popular music pianist. So he played the piano a lot and so on and couldn't really play it nearly as well as he, he used to. So there were a whole series of things that changed. And yeah, and of course, it's 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 a... I mean, for all of that, by the way, you know, I had a perfectly happy childhood. Mm. I mean, I didn't have an unhappy childhood. But
1: you must have sensed that, that huge sense of ambition that your father had and then lost because you must have had to give up so much Yes, that must be unbelievably difficult for you, wasn't it, as a
2: child? Yes, it was, and it, did, it definitely it definitely disciplined me. A, that life was uncertain, and B, it gave me a because I was quite wayward as a as a child. I mean, I think if I hadn't, if that experience hadn't happened, I might, you know, I might have gone off the rails mm. perfectly easily. I mean, I was very very sort of. Uh, wild at a a certain level and as I got older and I became you know this side of my character came out which was much more sort of wayward I was always kind of brought back into line by the thought that I couldn't I didn't want to hurt him Mm. or the family because he he was you know what did he have other than his children Mm. whereas I think funnily enough if he'd gone on and become really successful (laughs) I I could easily have you know ended up (laughs) in a in a bad way.
1: Was it very difficult going to boarding school when he'd been ill or not? Or was that a relief?
2: Um, well, that was three years later. So when I went at 13, I went to, to school in Edinburgh. Um, but it was always, you know, it was difficult. And I, because I tried to run away from school and I was almost getting expelled from school. And, I'd, you know, I had problem. But all the time, there was this kind of residual feeling you know, you don't push it too far because you know this is just. There's a certain amount of pressure you can put on them, a certain amount you really can't.
1: And with your mother as well, isn't
2: it? Yeah, and and my mm-hmm. mum who had a very difficult time because my sister was also extremely ill for a time, so around about the same time. So she,
0: she was in hospital for two years or something, wasn't she?
2: Yeah, I mean you know, my sister because at so that time she, she have... had serious rheumatoid arthritis, and at that time they would treat people with kind of steroids, keep them in now nowadays I think again they treat people completely differently with that condition so that was terrible for her and terrible for my mum and uh, and then of course when I was 21 my mum died so that was also mm. uh, but it's it's always when you describe it in that way you think you must have been very unhappy but I don't we didn't feel unhappy and we were a close family um, you must was, have
0: felt quite alone though, that you were everyone was dealing with quite difficult things and you had to manage
2: yeah, so like my my brother, my who's older than me, was was a very stabilizing mm-hmm. and serious right. kind of influence on the family. So, but you know, it was fine. I mean, in in one sense, but I there's no doubt it, it changed my perspective on life because also you you start to when you have a large drop in income in that part of the world at that time you know you are aware of the fact I mean my dad always used to say you learned very fast who are the people who stood by you and who are the people who drifted right. away you said
1: that in one of your conference speeches didn't you I remember that that that, that, yeah. that sense that you knew who your friends were in adversity um, and that must have been extraordinary as a child to even realize that that who who helped you and who yeah. stuck close
2: yeah no it, it was it's a, but it's a, it was a good education mm. and lessons in life and politics for sure
0: do you think that's where your sort of political ambition came from? That you had this sort of burden of almost burden of responsibility to fulfil his ambitions politically? Um
2: I never know about that really, because I, mm. I was I was genuinely interested in in issues. And even I sort of when I was quite young, maybe twelve, thirteen, I actually had some inter I remember discussing politics, and we used to have prospective MPs come to our, our house. Were so they on. always Tory? Yeah. <laughs> always <laughs> Tory.
1: <laughs> what did you think of that?
2: I didn't, No, actually, they weren't always Tory. No, that's not right, because the, the MP for Durham at the time, Mark Hughes, Ooh. was Labour and Dad knew him. So he, we would also see him from time to time.
1: And did you feel more of affiliation with him then than
2: with the Tories? No, I didn't feel particular affiliation with either, but uh, I was too young. Mm. Uh, but then I got not interested at all in politics until I became super interested when I was about 20.
0: Right. And do you, Did you have to help your dad learn to speak and making cups of tea and things when he asked for them? Or was, it, was it almost like the sense of the roles being reversed, that he became dependent on you? Um, or...
2: We would spend t- time with them, yes, and talking with them. Um, I mean, my mother did most of it, virtually all of it. But, uh, but no, I, re- I remember, and and obviously, as he started to get his speech back, and this mm-hmm. was, this was great, really, for us. Um, but no, it's, it's these things. Obviously, you, you can never be sure what what where where does the ambition and the drive come from? Is a sort of interesting thing, and I'm never, I'm never quite sure. Did your mother have real ambition for you? So did she talk to you about what she wanted you to achieve or
1: do? Or was she just a very stable presence?
2: She was more of a stable presence and she was a very um, kind nature, but quiet. My mother was very shy. My dad was very extrovert. My mother was shy. So um, No, she would have been happy with whatever I did, although she was... She was always slightly worried, you know, when I started to grow my hair long and get into rock music and all of that. Like she was bit, she wondered where that would lead. But.
0: but why do you think you were like that? Because I think Eric Anderson said you're always testing the limits very differently to, say, Cameron or Johnson, who he knew as well.
2: Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just uh, it just came naturally.
1: What's really interesting to me is that actually... Your father wasn't particularly religious, but you are quite religious and obviously were from quite a young age. And that, in that sense, in some ways, you were quite traditional. Because that, to me, is fascinating that in many ways you were a rebel, but you also did have a belief, didn't you? Which wasn't a particular family belief. It was something that you'd almost chose yourself.
2: My religious belief, though, came to me very much through, through this Australian uh, vicar, Peter Thompson, who was himself a very iconoclastic.
1: So you weren't religious until university?
2: No, I mean I would have been conventionally religious, as it were. You know, you turned up to church with your family because that's what people did. But did I think about it a lot? No. Um, so I only really started to think about it properly when I when I got to university and met and met him and and thought about religion in a different way from the way I'd been taught. But he was very much, even though people think today of religious faith as a very very conventional, conventional, slightly old-fashioned thing uh it wasn't in the way that he presented it. So
0: And do you I mean there was that famous thing when Alistair Campbell said we don't do God. And do you think um politics sort of drives religion out too much and actually leaders should be able to speak about their faith?
2: The trouble is he, he, the the reason Alistair said that, and he he was right really, is in the in the UK context, I mean he said to me I promise you, if you do that, people will say that you're trying to tell people that they're not a proper Christian unless they vote Labour. And right. I, I remember giving an interview in which I literally, in express terms, said, I am not saying that if you are a Christian, you've got to vote Labour. And the headline was, If you wanna <laughs> if you, you wanna be a proper Christian, vote Labour. Uh, so he regarded himself as somewhat um justified. Uh, then did your morning. faith
1: really help you when your mother was ill, when you were at
2: university, or and then when she died? When she died, yes. And yes, well, well, actually, when I was... Because at the age of 10, you kind of accept your religious upbringing as you just accept it. Um, yes, it did. I mean, it's, it's helped me deal with a lot of things in life, although it changes over time. I think the interesting question for the 21st century is will religion just die out because people think it's inconsistent with science and logic and reason? Or will they find a way to reconnect and redefine, reconnect to and redefine religious faith?
0: You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Tony Blair.
1: It must have been a real shock to have finished Oxford, had a fantastic time as a student and then your mother died just at the time when you're looking to broaden your horizons.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, again, it just teaches you also a certain, a certain lesson about insecurity. You know, a lot of people go through the whole of their youth and they never really have disturbing events. Mm. But when you've had the, a set of them, then I think it means that you, I think you acquire a certain urgency right, in your desire to fulfill yourself.
0: And also not taking life for granted.
2: No, and certainly not taking life for granted. That's that's correct. So that was a very big lesson. And that's really why after leaving university, I, I went back to something that's more conventional, which was becoming a pupil barrister, then a barrister and, you know, being pretty disciplined in the way I led my life. So the long hair came off. <laughs>
1: <The> <laughs> well, is that for your mother, really? On. I mean, did you, did you feel that, did you talk you, you, to her at all before she died about what she wanted or um, from life in a way that, did she give you any advice before she died?
2: Not, not particularly, but I, it, it's, and I, I don't even know, maybe I would have been like that anyway. Mm. But when I look back on it, I think obviously... It was just another demonstration of the fact that you know you couldn't take life for granted and th- difficult things happened and you had to make your way in the world mm.
0: so when you talk about the urgency, what do you mean is that where the is that partly political drive as well wanting to change the world
2: Yes, and I think the recognition that you know you can't be sure what's going to happen to you mm. so you better get on with it um but you never you never know i mean ambitions are curious thing. I mean, I know people who are ambitious and there seems to be no reason for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, Or maybe the reason, I just don't know the reason. I think in my case, definitely, you know, the, 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 there's no doubt that, we, that that my father's illness was a formative yeah. event, I, I think. I mean, maybe I exaggerated in retrospect because you go back over your life and, and things seem more important than possibly they were. But now I think when I I look at that, it definitely changed the direction of my life and gave me a a dimension to my character at an early stage that probably led to a lot of things yeah. afterwards.
1: It's almost fulfilling your father's ambition, isn't it, in a certain sense? That...
2: Yes, although, uh, you know, it's... I think I could have taken that into a different sphere. I think my, my political interest was... I didn't... It, it it wasn't sort of manufactured at all. It was a genuine interest. But
1: do you think he'd ever wanted to be prime minister or do you think he just wanted to be an MP?
2: Oh, no, yeah. I think my dad did want to be prime minister. He was intensely ambitious. <laughs> uh, and also he was, because he was from a very poor working class background, he would have been a, a, a perfect um, manifestation of a different Conservative Party. Mm.
1: Yes, do you think the Conservative Party would have been very different if he had been leader, really?
2: No, because I think he would probably have, he would have been part of that whole Thatcherite sort of movement away from the more patrician conservative party. So he would have felt at home in that. Um, And he never really stopped being conservative. I mean, (laughs) even though he used to come and support me and so on, but that was just because you believed in the family, but. No, he was, always, he was always conservative.
0: So when he was out campaigning, did he sometimes say the wrong things?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, he he, would, you know, he, was, he definitely didn't speak from the Labour speaking notes. Put it right. like that.
1: <laughs> and when you got to number 10, didn't he write a letter to you? And didn't he get a sort of standard stop reply?
2: Yeah, no, he, he, he used to write me letters and he would sign them off, your loving part. Right. He got this letter back saying, Dear loving Paul from Darling Street, the Prime Minister thanks you for your... (laughs) uh...
1: What did he say?
2: We just thought it was very funny. He
1: must have framed it, didn't
2: he? I don't know if we still got that letter somewhere. We should dig it out.
0: But also, don't you think his politics must have informed yours in the sense that it made you realize you had to, if you're going to win power, you had to win over Tory voters. Yeah, he very
2: much impressed on me. His whole thing about Labour was it holds you back. Labour doesn't want you to fulfill your ambitions. It basically wants you to be a client of the state. That was his whole thing. And, you know, I don't think it's true, but it was a it's what a lot of people feel and certainly at that time a lot of people were held back from labor because they thought we were anti-aspiration and making the labor party an aspirational party was was a was a big part of what i wanted to do but also yes it did it derived from from my looking at people who were you know should have been strong labor supporters but felt you know labor wanted to hold you back and and that was a very you know key thing that he taught me, not, not, he didn't teach me deliberately, Mm. but he taught me by his attitude to to the Labour Party and why he was one of the very few people, because he'd been secretary of the Young Communists in Glasgow when he was a teenager, and he was one of the very few people who went to the war and came back a conservative. I mean, most people went off to war and came back and chucked out Churchill and put in Attlee. He voted Conservative.
0: So when Labour MPs say things like, I can never be friends with a Conservative, what does that make you
2: think? That's well, just stupid, isn't it? Why? Because the whole point about a democracy is that you don't hate your opponents, you disagree with them, and then you fight an election. If you win, you get to govern. And if you lose, you've got to do better next time. Mm. And also, there's no point in being like that. I mean, people, you know, especially today, frankly one of the odd things about politics today is that ideologies got back in vogue at a time when ideological answers are have never been less relevant and people always confuse values and ideology you know values are really important but ideology just gets in the way if you if it ends up becoming structure around policies or prejudices Mm -hmm. which which it often does Mm. I mean values is and that people always say think if you're a pragmatist on policy it means you've got no values No, it just means that you think the most sensible way of implementing your values is to focus on what works
1: and actually your background was extraordinary in that way because it did manage to merge you you went to a public school your father came from a working-class background Uh, you had some acting in it you had it, it was such a mix but all we saw when you became prime minister was the sort of very normal dad with a mug and children, didn't we? That we didn't really see much of your background in a way. You just seemed deeply normal, which is actually you're not
2: really. Are you? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm normal in this sense, or I was. Uh, you know, it, the trouble is, you know, the last time I drove a car was before I just the day before the 1997 election.
0: Is so you got, right on all
2: the security. God. I mean, I always think being in power is a kind of conspiracy to make you as abnormal as possible because of the, the life you lead. Yeah.
1: Do you feel that actually because of your experience as a child that you, you were more, not isolated from other people, but you, you could make decisions on your own, that you, you were used to having to be on your own and having to really take responsibility for yourself? I
2: think, no, I think it was more that because I had this very, str- I did have a strange upbringing, and because of my father also not, you know, having this very odd upbringing himself, I think I had many fewer preconceptions. You know, I didn't, even though I went to a private school, I never, I I, I used to always think there were some people who had generations had gone to private schools and they had a very, very, a very formed way of thinking. They had certain views that just really didn't change. And, one of the things that I think did help me in politics was an ability to kind of understand, because I wasn't so rooted that that I I, I just had a a worldview that was very sharply defined. I was much more interested in different people and different cultures and just because I didn't feel myself, I had this vast tradition behind me. You're not
1: really from any class, are you? Or, it's quite difficult to know whether you're from the North or Scottish or...
2: Yeah. So all of that, all of that was, was helpful. Um,
0: Charlie Faulkner, I spoke to the other day and he said, he's known you since you were at school. He adores you. You know, he was Tony's crony. I remember when you call up, when he was in the cabinet, you you know, hello, Tony's crony here. Um, (laughs) You were flatmates. You served in government together. And he said to me in all the time he's known. He did steal
2: my girlfriend though. (laughs) Yes. So
0: that's... <laughs> never forget You're never me. talking to him again. <laughs> well, maybe this explains what he said. He said, ever since he's known you, this is said in a very positive way, you've had an emotional aloneness, was his phrase. And that it's not just independence, it's almost a rejection of dependence. And he thought it's because having seen what your father went through, um, the roles were reversed and that, the, you know, the parent became dependent on the child. And that actually in some ways, though, that's quite a good preparation for... Being prime minister because it's lonely at the top and you need your armor on. Do you recognise that at all?
2: Um, I'm absolutely hopeless at self-analysis, <laughs> as you probably realised.
0: Have you had it's any? It's interesting. I mean, does, have
1: you had any sort of analysis done on you, or have you ever seen a psychologist? Or
2: no, I haven't. I mean, nowadays <laughs> you sort of say that, and people think, "Oh, so what's wrong with the guy?" But you know, I just, I don't.
1: And are you glad you didn't as a child? Because you might have now been, you know, with that sort of, those sort of issues and your parents dying.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, it, I, I'm,
2: I'm hopelessly politically incorrect on in all these things, because I just think if you're not careful, you get obsessed with introspection. And, you know, it's also because in the work I do now, and I, I really mean this when I say, I, I, I when, when I go and I visit these countries where... You know kids will be growing up in a family where at least one of the siblings has died from a childhood disease, and the parents are scraping money together and living day by day. You can think that West's desire to just go into endless sort of self absorbed introspection is is not very healthy, but that's probably wrong i mean but i did, so the fact is I'm hopeless at self analysis mm-hmm. and I think what Charlie says, yeah i mean there may be there may be some truth in that um and he's a very perceptive guy, so
0: how would you describe it? So he says emotional aloneness. Do you think that's...
2: I think you, you, you realise... I've certainly realised over time that I'm very fortunate. So I don't... That gives you a certain protection. And you, I always think, what's the worst that can happen? Okay, the whole thing gets taken away. You're thrown out on the street. Okay, you're still alive. You've still got your brain.
0: And your family.
2: And you've got, you've got your family.
0: But do you think that's because you've had something bad happen to you when you were young? Maybe. Partly. Yeah. Maybe.
2: I mean, because I, I... you realise you, you, you can survive. Yeah. But I I don't, it's very difficult to know. I mean, there's all sorts of studies now on mental illness and well being, And, you know, you can, I'm never sure the degree to which you, you work it out yourself or you just happen naturally to be optimistic in in your, in your nature. And I am optimistic and just, just, you know, I guess the early childhood could have made me pessimistic, but it didn't.
1: And what does Cherie say about it? Because she must have an opinion on
2: I know how it affected you. She, have to... she must bring you it have up You have to ask it's probably not yeah. wise. Anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but just, do, you, do you think it makes her feel that, that you're more vulnerable or less vulnerable? Or
2: I don't know. But she had her own strange childhood. Mm. So we both I mean the thing both our childhoods have done is put a great emphasis on wanting the family to be a strong family. And so I've I've two sons now with children and I'm I mean, we're incredibly fortunate in their their both of their partners are extremely good people. We're very lucky in that and they're they're both good good dads as well. So much better than I was, so
1: did it worry you when they were in Number Ten that that you were going to damage them in some way? That actually it was very difficult to be a child. Yes, in Number Ten, that almost
2: lost you to a certain extent to your job. Yes, it did.
0: Because Nikki, I think, was the same age as you were when your dad had the stroke. So it's a sort of
2: yeah, yes, I I think it definitely, and you know, you you're never quite sure because I remember once a few years back, I mean, but some years after i would left office, making the mistake once of saying at dinner that you know, I don't think you guys really had that much hassle as a result of being my <laughs> children. And I, I got a very sharp education on what it had been like. What
0: did they say?
2: I just it had been difficult at points at, mm. at, at, at school. And, uh, um yeah, without going into detail, actually points much more difficult than I realised. But on the other hand, they all said, and agreed, look, there are pluses and minuses. We've also met some amazing people. We've got a very lucky start in life. And
0: Do they do feel think... an incredible pressure, though, to succeed now?
2: Or... I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think so particularly. But I think they're, you know, they're naturally quite desirous of achieving. Mm. Um, Were they
1: trying to protect you, do you think, they're number 10, when they didn't tell you how difficult
2: it yes, was? Yes, I, I, think, I think they they did because uh, they could have told me, and obviously I would have been upset and wanted to act on it as well, but but I didn't know, um, and, and therefore didn't. But, you know, children are, are quite... It's one of the things you learn about kids is they're, they're quite resilient. They're often more resilient than their parents give them credit for.
0: Margaret Hodron said to us that she thought everyone at Westminster, or not everyone, but a lot of politicians were quite mad, and it's such a sort of crazy life. Um, and there's something about the choosing a life where you have to have the external endorsement from the electorate every few years, and it's, you're putting your life at risk all the time. Do you think um, there is something, you, you have a lot of damaged souls at Westminster, that there's something that drives people into politics often?
2: I don't know whether they're damaged. I guess politicians are a pretty strange breed.
0: Why uh, is that?
2: Because it's a bit of an odd life, isn't it? And... and it's, you know, I suppose it's like people who go on the stage or, you know, you've got to have a certain type of personality to want to put yourself in that position. Although, as I always reflect nowadays, what social media has taught us is that (laughs) there are a lot of strange people out there. Mm -hmm. So they probably, I mean, journalism, is that different? (laughs) Well, you only
0: had pages, didn't you, in 97? You didn't have um, Twitter. It was so different.
2: Yeah, and it's so different and, it, and it's, social media is just such a revolutionary phenomenon in every aspect of it. Um politicians, but politicians also come in different shapes and sizes. I've met some of the worst people I've ever known in politics and I've met some of the best people I've ever known.
1: Do you think they're getting better or worse?
2: I think there's a real problem with the gene pool in politics today, because I think that there's one, if it gets gripped by ideology, smart people either don't want to function in it or can't function in it because they can't get selected unless they're prepared to toe the line and that's a really crazy thing for political parties to do to themselves so you know for a time it was difficult to get selected i mean good labour candidates did get selected but you know you were also bringing in a whole lot of people who just knew what they had to say for the far left and then said it and get selected and that's that's really bad so i think there's that but i also think you know we don't bring people into politics nowadays who have spent a lot a lot of time outside of politics, and over time that's going to be a real problem. So democracy, I think, has got a big challenge, uh, which is essentially. So people always want to think of the challenge of politics as around integrity or honesty, transparency, and it's really not. It's the challenge of democracy today is efficacy. Is can you make can you make the system work effectively? Can you take big decisions and drive them through? Do you have the quality of people? that really understand the world. And, you know, I think that's where the gene pool of politics has declined.
0: Is that to do with ideology or is it to do with the nastiness of political debate that it's got so much more ferocious? (laughs) Well, it's a bit bit of both because
2: the nastiness then reinforces the types that go in. And it's not that the people who go in, by the way, are nasty and, you know, on the whole, they're not, but but it it can repel a lot of people who otherwise would go in. And I still think there's a lot of, Um, you know, pressure against people who've gone and done something else with their life. You know, whereas if you left university, became a researcher for an MP, then became a candidate and fought a hopeless seat and then become a candidate for a decent seat and you come into parliament, you know, what do you know about life outside of parliament and politics? And it's not that those aren't necessarily intelligent people, but you learn so much when you're in a non-political environment.
1: And did you learn a lot as a barrister, do you think, as well as having quite a complicated childhood that you learned more about empathy and about how people lived? And-
2: yes. I mean, I always say to people that the, the seven years I spent as a commercial and industrial lawyer was very, very important for me because I was mixing with people the whole time, quite apart from the discipline of sort of learning to analyse and argue cases and so on. But the, the biggest thing was really the um, the ability to... Understand what normal, non-political life was like, and what it was like for people to run businesses and so on and so forth, and and really just to sort of make sure that you you understood that the world of politics should start with reality. Mm. It shouldn't start with the world of politics, and and knowing that reality and experiencing it is a very important part then of, of being able to do politics properly because you then understand
1: at the beginning you were seen as having emotional intelligence as well weren't you when princess diana died and you gave your speech and you talked about her and 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 that was seen as a very new age that the sense that you could talk about emotions and you could talk about issues um and do you think that was very specific to
2: you yeah well we were we were a different generation of people and suddenly you know that was why we got that landslide victory in 1997 is that the zeitgeist had changed Mm. and we were representatives of that. In a sense, she was a representative of it, actually. Um, And so, yeah, all of that changed. And then, you know, there was big social change. I mean, people forget this now, but, you know, in the 1980s and indeed 1990s, support for gay rights was seen as extremist. Mm. You know, I think we were the first government to have, a black minister, I think. First government to have a Muslim minister. Uh, first government to have a female foreign secretary, Chief Whip, you know, bring I mean many more women in a cabinet than any government had done before. So we still obviously have got a long way to go and all of those things. But you know, it was a change, it was a social change. Mm. We managed to we managed to do that social change because we did it in a way that didn't alienate that that somewhat small C conservative center ground. More important than virtually anything else we did was to make law and order a major part of our pitch. And I did that for reasons of belief, but it also served a very important political purpose. It meant that those working class communities that probably thought about some of our um, policies around, you know, gay rights, social change, those small C conservative working class communities. On the other hand, they got completely what we were trying to do on law and order.
1: And on institutions, didn't you? So in a sense, I, mean, I don't know whether it was to do with your mother, but you you were never sort of antagonistic to the royal family itself. In, in a way, with the Queen, you felt very much that when Princess Diana died, it wasn't that you were trying to...
2: Yeah, because it's part, part of your, your job is to try and keep the country together. Mm-hmm. And... I was aware of the fact there was a very strong feeling at that point against the royal family, but I was also aware of the whole section of the British public, uh, including people like my dad, who would have been horrified if I'd used that to sort of turn it into a a rant against the monarchy. And, you know, I will say to people, my generation's come to a a kind of settled view, I think, about the monarchy, which is not one of deference, but one of saying, well, this is an institution that holds the country together and provided duty is their foremost thing which, by and large, it is, by the way, in my view. Then that's fine. You know, it's not that you've got some sort of you know you're not going to be putting pictures of the Royals all over your walls necessarily, but you're 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 respectful of the institution, respectful of the fact that a large part of the British population are very fond of them, and you know this is it's and it's all it's also about having the maturity to choose your battles. You know so. Fighting low pay really matters to me. You know, fighting the monarchy doesn't, even if I've felt differently about them.
1: Ruth Davidson ruled herself out from being a number 10 because she said she wasn't mentally robust enough, that she was worried that you had to be really strong. Do you think that is some quality that you do
2: need if you're a number 10? Is it
1: incredibly
2: tough yes, there. And do you, you need
1: to be a strong enough
2: You need to be very person. robust. I mean, I think it's a shame Ruth felt like that or feels like that because she's a huge political talent, I think. Um, but yeah, no, you've got to be prepared for that. It, it's because you're taking decisions all the time that affect people and they're all difficult or most of them are difficult. Did
1: you ever get depressed at
2: all? I got, no, not depressed, um, anxious. Yeah, anxious.
0: How did that manifest itself?
2: Well, just you, you feel very worried. You're agonizing over things, but you realize you've got to take the decisions. Um, yeah, it's, 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 there's, there's no doubt. And, you know, this is why now, OK, it's all very well for someone like me to sit there and say, well, look, Boris Johnson should be doing this or should be doing that. But, you know, one thing I've learned since leaving office is it's a downside easier to give the advice than take the decision. But, you know, if you're actually in his position, say around some of the things that he's deciding, you know, you've got to take a decision. And whatever you take, decision you take, someone will tell you it's the wrong one.
0: Did you feel hurt when people stopped liking you. So do you mind when people say you're a war criminal or when, you know, you get absolutely berated on Twitter? How does that make you feel as Um, a person? I mean, or do you just feel incredibly thick skinned about it?
2: No, I don't think anyone's ever that thick skinned. I mean, of course you don't like it and it's not pleasant. (laughs) But on the other hand, you can't be intimidated by it. One of the things you realise about the job is you mustn't be intimidated.
1: Did you read your own press or not?
2: Not much. I've never been a great one for that, actually. I never watch myself on TV. Well, actually, occasionally I do, but but not nearly as much as many people I...
0: Do you, are you on Twitter?
2: No, the Institute's on Twitter. Uh, but, you know, you read some of this stuff on social media and you think, what gets into these people that write this stuff? <laughs> I mean, honestly.
0: But also, you get it more from the left than the right, actually.
2: Well it- I get it from both sides. Mm. Uh in fact, because the social change and the pro-European is 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 offends the right nowadays. Um, yeah, but it's but these people do it to intimidate, and therefore you've got to it's very important that you stand up to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you worry more about how you're seen historically then? Do you think? Is that something you worried about at all when you were Prime Minister or that you kidnap?
2: I think it's I think you can never tell, so there's no point in worrying about it. it. You can't really affect that. What I did worry about as I went on, and really people I think don't fully understand this about how I, what I became eventually, is I actually just did what I thought was right towards the end.
0: And Do you think that was the right thing to do?
2: I think it was the right thing to do, but I'm not sure it was very sensible, <laughs> politically and personally.
0: Well, there's a danger of you getting sort of detached from the public.
2: Yeah, but it's not. You can be detached from the public. It's different from deciding that you're going to just blow with the wind.
0: Mm.
2: And and I was very, very determined by the end of it. I, by the end of it, I came to the conclusion that your actual responsibility is just to do what you think is right. Now, you may be wrong, and you've got to accept that, and there's lots of things, because what, what you realise over time... As the problem as a prime minister is that there's a lot of things that you don't know about, but you're having to take decisions about, or you don't know in the depth that you'd like to know it. <clears throat> and, you know, I've learned a huge amount since I left office. I mean, I'd be different today if I was back in office.
0: Do you worry about the future now?
2: Well, it depends. If these things go in cycles and if the Labour Party corrects itself mm. and gets back to, you know, a serious modern progressive position, uh then, then, no, it can change, and you know and you've that's been living people.
1: with your son, Leo for the, the last few weeks. <laughs> Does that give you optimism about the next generation in the future? Do you look at them and think they're more altruistic or more political or
2: is yeah, there a sense yeah, or... yeah i'm I'm very optimistic about them. I think they're a very committed group of young people um there's a lot of idealism there.
1: would you want him to go into politics?
2: if he wanted to, I would.
0: Do you think any of them will?
2: I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, in in for the older ones, the problem because they're in their early thirties now. The problem with them is that they, they and their friends have been, you know, sort of shut. If they're not conservatives, the Labour Party has been pretty much closed to them, so it's difficult for them. But that may change in time. That, who knows?
0: Do you mean because it's too left wing, or because they're your children?
2: Um, well, a bit of both, I guess, but it, it's, um, you know, it's possible that, that that can, these things go in cycles, don't they? So it, it, it can it can change. I don't know any of them will do. I mean, Leo's very interested in politics, but whether he'd ever want to go into it or not, I don't know.
1: And what do you think your father would think now if he was here? How would he perceive the last few years? Was it seemed that Britain was going in a certain direction and then it really changed, didn't it, in the last decade?
2: Yeah, well, my dad would probably be, I mean, you know, if would he, he have th-
1: been a Brexiteer, do you think, or would have been?
2: Um, yes, I think so. If, if he'd been as he was, but, you know, who knows what he would... I, I, you, you can't really tell because, mm-hmm. obviously, he was from a different generation. Yeah, probably he, he, he would have been um, because he was from that sort of wing of the Conservative Party, although you can never be sure. What people. do you
0: think your mum would have been proudest of that you did with, in your life?
2: Well, she would have been proud of becoming prime minister. Yeah, <laughs> but
0: what did, when, that you did? She would have
2: been surprised. <laughs> she would have been absolutely shocked.
0: Do you think why?
2: Because when I when she died, I was still a kind of rock and roll rebel. So <laughs> she would have been very surprised. Was um, it
1: more likely to have been your older brother then?
2: Yeah, much more. But although my older brother was never very interested in politics. Mm. As a as a career he was he was a true lawyer
0: so if you think back to yourself at 10 what would you say to your 10 year old self now
2: what you're feeling now is about right so carry on (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i would have you know what can you
0: and what were you feeling what do you mean
2: that life does require a certain sense of urgency and get up and go and and you are to a degree on your own so make the most of it. So I think probably I I don't know. I can't I gotta really think what I would what I would say to him or what he'd say to me.
0: Is there anything you wish you'd known then that you know now?
2: Yeah, masses of things. But you know the part of the trouble is I always remember saying to my mother when she was actually very ill, you know, if you could go back to being a, a young my age again. And this would been when I was maybe eighteen or nineteen, would you would you want to do it? And and I've been I was surprised at her answer, which was no. Would you want to do what? Would you go back to being young? Oh, right.
0: But you
1: would. Would you like to start again?
2: I'm not sure because the thing is, you're aware of how much pain there is in the whole process of living. So if you you kind of went. Back knowing what you know now would you would you have the would you still have the, <laughs> the same drive and energy it's also you,
1: it's also about luck as well isn't it and would you have the same luck yeah, so it isn't exactly. all about drive and energy some of it's just about circumstance
2: no it's an absolute circumstance and that's i mean i would never have become an mp in any normal set of circumstances but just did in the circumstances of 1983
0: mm-hmm. and what do you think what's the sort of single thing since your mother died that you've been proudest of
2: I think raising a family that I that I like as well as love, which mm. is which I think is not that usual. <laughs> um, I think and we're going it, to, just
0: the final one: is whether do you think having a sort of some kind of trauma or adversity that you overcome when you're young does that confer any kind of advantage? In a way, do you think there's a benefit to that?
2: Even I though th- it doesn't
0: feel like it. At I the mean, time? I
2: obviously now. Having lived quite a long life and met a large number of very successful people in different walks of life, I think there's usually a spur somewhere. Uh, and spurs are painful. Mm. Um, but out of that comes an, in, an, an intensity, um, not necessarily only of, of ambition, but a desire to achieve. That's my general experience of the people who are successful, not always, but usually there's been something in their background or their childhood or their circumstances that have kind of just dug into them and made them them break into a gallop. (laughs)
0: You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Tony Blair. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you
1: enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening.